Welcome back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. In this episode, we're going to celebrate Halloween by taking a look at some of the ghost stories, myths, and monsters of yesteryear that frightened and mystified the men and women of the early North American frontiers. And I'd like to issue a disclaimer before we begin. Many of these terrifying creatures discussed in this episode are Native American or First Nations Canadian in origin, and they are still part of their beliefs today. Most tribes don't want to discuss their beliefs with inquiring white minds, because we don't have the background knowledge to handle it respectfully. It's very insulting for white folk to approach First Nations peoples with a million questions about their culture, particularly when it comes to legends of monsters and mythical beings. So please, be polite, be respectful. To First Nations people, these monsters are real. Now, ghost stories are something that almost every culture has in common. Some stories are born out of the need to keep people safe. For instance, a story about witches biting children who wander about at night would encourage them to stay safely tucked inside. For those brazen children who do wander out, and come back with a bunch of mosquito bites, the parents are given an I-told-you-so moment, thereby, air quote, proving the story to be true. Some stories are used to fill in the blanks in the narrative of an event. Uh, for example, Trapper Jim and Trapper Fred are out working a line near a noisy waterfall. Jim slips and falls into the water and drowns, while Fred isn't looking. When Fred does look back, there's a coyote standing at the head of the falls where Jim should be. Returning to his company, Fred later tells the group what he saw. Coyote represents the trickster in many native cultures, and is often what shapeshifters transform into. Therefore, Trapper Jim becomes the victim of the spirits playing tricks, transforming him into a coyote to roam forever in the wilderness. On the other hand... Some myths are born out of a lack of understanding of the environment around them. The Thunderbirds and Lightning Gods make it easier to explain natural phenomenon and give people power over the unknown. Blaming unhappy gods and goddesses also make it easier to live with the fact that crops fail and water sources dry up. Some stories commemorate events or stir emotions. For example, a story of the Battle of Wounded Knee would be told again and again until everyone knew the details by heart, and it became a legend. The battle would never be forgotten. People would be reminded of their heritage, and the slain would forever be honored with each retelling of the tale. Stories can also be used to remind people of their origins, or teach a little about their history. And while origin stories are as varied as the tribes themselves, they all have a general theme. First there was nothing, then this being created all life, now we honor that being. Or, first the people were helpless, then that being taught us how to live, now we honor that being. It's not so different from Christianity or any of the other major religions. Sometimes... Stories are told to make people around the campfire feel included. This would go a long way to make the fur company's new homesick recruits feel like they were part of a group, or put them at ease in new and frightening situations. And sometimes stories are created to teach an important lesson, 
An example in Greek mythology would be when Icarus flew too close to the sun and his wax wings melted off. In Navajo traditions, a similar story exists. In fact, many of the Plains tribes have wonderful lesson stories that you can find online. But I will share my favorite Cherokee lesson story with you here, just as a bonus. A little boy is walking down a forest path, and he came across an old rattlesnake sitting in the middle of the road. The rattlesnake asked, Please, little boy, can you take me to the top of the mountain? I hope to see the sunset one last time before I die. The little boy answered, No, rattlesnake, I cannot. For if I pick you up, you'll bite me, and I will surely die. The rattlesnake said, No, I promise, I won't bite you. Please, just take me up to the mountaintop so that I can see the sunset before I die. The little boy thought about it for a minute, and finally he picked up the rattlesnake, held it close to his chest, and he carried it to the top of the mountain. Together they sat there and they watched the sunset, and it was so beautiful. Then, after the sun had set, the rattlesnake turned to the little boy and asked, Can I go home now? I'm old and so very tired. The little boy picked up the rattlesnake and again took it to his chest, and he held it gently and safely. He came all the way back down the mountain, carefully holding the snake, and the boy took Rattlesnake to his own home to give him some food and a warm place to sleep. The next day, the rattlesnake turned to the boy and asked, Please, little boy, will you take me back to my home now? It is time for me to leave this world, and I would like to be at home when I do. The little boy felt that he had been safe all this time, and the snake had kept his word, so he agreed to take it home as he asked. He carefully picked up Rattlesnake, held it gently to his chest, and carried it back to the woods and back to its home so it may die in peace. Just before he laid the Rattlesnake down, the Rattlesnake turned and bit him in the chest. The little boy cried out and he threw the snake upon the ground. Rattlesnake, why did you do that? Now I will surely die. The Rattlesnake looked up at him and grinned. You knew what I was when you picked me up. I know, it has nothing to do with Halloween, but I love that story. So, you can see that stories serve many purposes. Sometimes, though, several people just see the same weird phenomena, and no legitimate scientific answer is available to explain what's going on. And those are the stories we're going to talk about today. The weird ones. In most indigenous societies... The shaman is the man or the woman who acts as the bridge between the spirit and the human realms. They are the mouthpiece for the spirits and the representative of the people to our ancestors. And those shaman hold different ceremonies to either appease the spirits or to request their advice. One of those ceremonies is called the shaking tent ceremony. Several poles would be sunk into the ground in a circle or a rough square a few feet in diameter. A hide would be wrapped around the outside of those poles, creating a tent. The space at the top was left open. And these weren't little poles. Some of these inner tents reached heights of six to eight feet. And these little communication center tents were erected inside of a massive lodge designed to hold nearly the whole tribe. During this parlay with the spirit realm, tribal members would gather around and shout out questions while the shaman acted like a conduit of sorts, channeling back the answers. This was a chance for tribe members to reconnect with lost loved ones, or get answers to burning questions they had. 
So let's look at this from the tribe member's point of view. You enter the outer lodge and you take your seat among the tribe. There's a palpable excitement in the air as each of you wait for the shaman to enter. People are making small talk and sharing a moment of camaraderie. They're talking excitedly, joking about silly things that happened last week or something that Grandma Running Doe said. After all the members of the tribe have entered, the high doors are untied and dropped over the entrances. It's now dark. The air is close and warm, and an uneasy silence falls over the people. Someone tries to stifle a cough. Another whispers to their neighbor. As your eyes adjust to the darkness, you can feel the tension rising amongst the tribe members. Everyone is anxiously awaiting the beginning of the ceremony. Suddenly, one of the hide flaps is thrown aside and a bright light floods in. With a raised arm, you shield your dilated pupils from the sudden assault of this light. Through the glowing halo, a horned silhouette steps into the doorway. The people around you collectively catch their breath in anticipation. The shaman stands there, bare-chested and brightly painted with their protective symbols. Their elaborate headdress casts long, frightening shadows against the earthen floor. The door is again dropped over the hole, abruptly casting everyone back into darkness. Silence lays like a wet, heavy blanket, with anxious hearts beating in the ears of each person. The shaman begins their song for protection, quietly, little more than a whisper, then a mumble as the people around lean forward to hear. Slowly, the song becomes louder, with the shaman asking the ancestors for guidance on their journey. As the song builds in tempo and volume, the people's anticipation grows until it feels like you can't take any more. The shaman enters the inner tent and he lies down on the ground. The ceremony is about to begin. With meditation and sometimes special help from the plant world, the shaman becomes the conduit between the ancestors and the people around you. They are the bridge connecting both worlds. The inner tent trembles then it shudders, and it trembles again. Then the shaking grows and grows in intensity until the inner tent is pitched violently back and forth. Wolves and dogs can be heard barking and howling from within, snarling animals and screams of wildcats, the screech of brother eagle. Voices scream and mutter in unknown languages. Hisses and howls of demons and monsters emanate from within the shuddering tent. Moans and groans and ear-piercing screams of spirits make the hair on your arms and neck stand on end. The low growl of a spirit beast makes the goose flesh ripple up your body. The shaman's body, now fully controlled by the ancestors, levitates off the ground as the tent pitches and heaves around him. Sparks begin to glow at the top of the tent, shooting crackling tendrils of flame up into the air. The audience gasps in amazement at the glowing, snapping ball of light hovering at the top of the shaking tent. Imagine how amazing that must have been to witness. And when that glow would appear, the spirits were ready to answer the questions of those breathless observers. In some tribes, the participants would ask their questions in a reserved and reverent manner. But in other tribes, the participants would joke and jibe with the spirits as they reconnected with their old friends and family members from long ago. 
They were also known to jeer and hiss at spirits that they knew to be either evil or liars. And after several hours, when the questions were all asked and the answers were all given, the spirits would retreat once more to their own realm, and the inner tent would cease its violent shaking. The shaman would then appear, drenched in sweat, exhausted, and completely unaware of what had transpired while in their trance-like state. Stories like this are awesome, aren't they? They're even better when they're real, and this one is. In fact, it drew the attention of more than a few European trappers and traders who chronicled this event. Opinions are mixed. Explorer Samuel de Champlain wrote it off to the shaman physically manipulating the tent, though he could not explain how the guy pulled off the fire coming out the top of the tent. A Jesuit missionary named Father Paul Lejeune also thought it to be hokum at first, but later changed his mind when that ball of fire and sparks appeared. And more than a hundred years later, Englishman Alexander Henry the Elder experienced this ceremony, and he could not even begin to explain what had happened. It remains one of the greatest ceremonial mysteries today. Incidentally, Alexander Henry also brought us another creepy story from his memoirs from the Winnipeg River area of Canada. He had camped at the head of a portage at a site the locals called the carrying place of the crying child. According to Henry's own journal, the story goes that many moons past, a child fell into a chasm there, only a few yards across, but too deep to see the bottom. It's said that if you stand quiet and still by the crevice, you can hear the child crying today. Now, to the white folks coming into this untamed wilderness, stories like these would have justified their apprehensions. And the white folks on the frontier had a lot to fear. Besides disease and injury, crop failures and starvation, the psychological toll of solitude and harsh short lives, they also had things happening that they weren't familiar with, and that frightened them to the core. Tornadoes, dust devils, derechos, prairie wildfires, other naturally occurring events were something that many of them had never seen back in their home countries or even back on the east coast of the New World. It wasn't until they came to the plains of North America that many of them even faced such challenges. Something else they were scared to death of is anyone who looked different than they were. Rumor and hype made all natives out to be hostile murderers, so a screaming hostile Indian was likely at the top of their things-that-will-kill-me list. Now, for the mountain men who lived close to the natives, that wasn't really an issue. They had the benefit of being much more in tune to the First Nations peoples, and they knew them from what they really were. They spent evenings sitting around the same campfires, listening to the stories that their native friends told. Stories of wendigos and witches, little people and giant thunderbirds. We know from some of the journals that unexplained phenomena did happen in the wilderness. And we know that each of those stories was told and told again until they took on a life of their own. And a prime example of this would be when three of the superstitious French voyagers each told a story about seeing three glowing orbs appear before the bow of their canoe. They all saw the same event. But one said the three orbs were Saints Peter and Paul coming with the Virgin Mary to lead them through turbulent waters. Another said it signified that three souls would be taken before the journey's end. 
and yet another said that all but three souls would perish in the waters downstream. So hopefully you can see how one event can create three different myths just by how the person interpreting the event retold the story. And if you take that event and play the children's game of Chinese whispers, by the time the story reaches the last person, or reaches through history of 250 years to modern day, it's been modified and embellished several times. Today, we are very aware of bioluminescence that happens on tree stumps in untamed areas. Albeit a rare occurrence, it happens. But can you imagine what a mountain man would think if they came across this back then? To explain it, they would have to come up with something based on their limited knowledge. And that story would likely include spirits and demons. Some of these spirits and demon stories persist even to modern times. For example... The Jersey Devil is a story that most South New Jerseyans and Philadelphia residents can tell you about. Many believe the story of the notorious demon of the Pine Barrens began in the 1700s. But this legend of the Jersey Devil, or Leeds Devil to some, stretches all the way back to the indigenous Lenni Lenape people who lived around the Pine Barrens in South Jersey from the late 1600s on. Now, for those who have never been lucky enough to see this beautiful place, it's more than a million acres of pristine pine forest, and it remains largely unspoiled today. But back in that day, it was considered rough and inhospitable. People who lived within the woods were called pineys. It's a derogatory name used to demonize the residents there. Pineys was synonymous with terms like uneducated, uncouth, backwoods, or redneck, or even criminal. In truth, the Pine Barrens are so thick and formidable that a person could easily disappear into the woods and never be seen again. Even today, poorly equipped hikers can run into issues. So for people like poor farmers evading the tax man, or fugitives and runaway slaves, or moonshiners and bootleggers, or military deserters, they could all take refuge in the dark depths of the Pine Barrens and live their lives out in relative peace. For a while, it became a place where brigands, cut purses, and rogues, collectively known as the Pine Robbers, would lay in wait for innocent people to pass by. The likelihood of being robbed made the concept of this dark, forbidden forest that will eat you up and spit you back out again even more believable. From this fear that the early colonists had of these dangers of the Pine Barrens, a devil story was born. Depending on who told the story, the devil was either a bipedal demon with the head of a horse, cloven hooves, and large bat-like wings, or a kangaroo-like creature with a forked tail, the head of a goat, and wee tiny arms with claws like T-Rex. Others say it looked like an alligator standing on its hind legs, with gigantic wings and sharp disemboweling claws. In all the white man's stories, it's a quick-moving beast whose high-pitched scream could paralyze travelers in their tracks, and was often considered by some to be a harbinger of death. If you heard the Jersey Devil within the confines of the Pine Barrens, you were the next to go. Now, there are several, quote-unquote, historical versions of how the devil came to be. But let's look first at the originators of this creature. The Lenni Lenape people called it 
Msing, M apostrophe S-I-N-G. And they saw it as a stag-like creature, standing upright with cloven hooves and giant leathery wings. Msing is the spirit of the Pine Barrens themselves, manifested in this mysterious creature who flew among the treetops, standing guard over the plants and animals who lived within. The Lenape never built their houses in the Barrens, out of respect for, and likely a good bit of fear of, this creature. The spirit creature is what gave the plants and animals their life force, and it was not a creature to be trifled with. The Lenape honored that creature with ceremonial dances, where they would sing and chant as they danced around a communal fire. The shaman wore a long fur cloak and a giant mask depicting the creature's horns and large eyes. Bat-like wings and a long serpentine tail stuck out from the cloak. Dancing to the spirit's honor was what kept the spirit creature happy. And these successful lives of those animals and plants living in the barrens was proof that this was working. Then the white man came, and the Lenape were pushed away from the area. The white man did not dance to honor the spirit creature, and the white man began to take the land within the barrens as if it were his to take. And he killed the creatures and plants that lived within. And the spirit creature grew unhappy. The creature began to menace the white man's communities, and this is why the spirit creature continues to scare the white man today. Once the white man did actually move into this area in the 1700s, new versions of the story began to surface. One version tells of a woman named Jean Leeds, L-E-E-D-S, who had 12 children, and upon finding out that she was pregnant yet again, cursed the unborn child, stating it would be the devil. On a frighteningly stormy night, surrounded by her friends and family, the baby was delivered, and it came out normal. But suddenly, before their very eyes, it began to change. Its feet morphed into hooves, its face into that of a goat, and its eyes began to glow red. Bat wings and a long forked tail sprouted from the infant's back. It growled and screamed like a demon as it spun around, beating people with its bifurcated tail. The infant then flapped its wings hard and flew up the chimney, disappearing forever into the Pine Barrens. Now, in some versions of that story, Mother Leeds is a woman who did actually exist, a woman by the name of Deborah Leeds. Sometimes she's a witch and made a deal with the devil to unleash the demon child into the Barrens. In other versions, the devil forced himself upon Mother Leeds. Some of the stories tell of local priests and pastors who tried to exorcise the winged creature from the barrens to no avail. And throughout history, groups of hunters and vigilantes have attempted to hunt this creature, but none have been successful. Historians are divided on the actual point of creation for this myth. Some say it was the overactive colonial imaginations and a fear of the unknown. Some say it was a political debate between Ben Franklin and a man named Daniel Leeds. You see, both men published an almanac, and Daniel Leeds often made references to astrological formations in his version. This did not set well with the strict Quaker people of the time, who felt he was communing with pagan entities. So to some, Daniel Leeds himself was the Jersey Devil. To others, his son Titan was the demon in human form. 
when he inherited the Almanac Publication Service after his father died, Titan began incorporating the wyvern from his family crest into the artwork on the cover. And the wyvern is eerily similar to the descriptions of the Jersey Devil. So to some, Titan's creation became the proof they needed that he was communing with dark spirits. Now during the 1700s, the Quakers had tried to censor both Titan and his father. And the more they tried to shut the Leeds family up, the more the family spoke out against them. Things got so petty that Ben Franklin even published that he had used divine astrological means to determine that Titan would die in the year 1733. Well, Titan was understandably upset, and he ridiculed Ben Franklin very publicly. Ben Franklin then doubled down by mocking Titan Leeds, saying that the man had in fact died, and that it was Titan's ghost that was publishing the almanac, and doing a crap job of it, he might add. So, it's also possible that the Leeds Devil is a reference to Titan's ghost that was the story created by Ben Franklin. But something I'd like to point out here. All the historians that have given these completely plausible explanations failed to mention one thing. The Lenape believed in a creature that fit the description for hundreds of years before the white men ever got to New Jersey. Additionally, there have been sightings by some really reliable people, not just those deemed to be uneducated Pineys. The earliest in recorded history was actually in 1820 by Joseph Bonaparte, who was the big brother to the Emperor Napoleon. Livestock killings began in 1840s, and they continued for about a year or so before dying down. Then the creature goes strangely quiet for 70 years, until 1909. It was during that year that the creature made several appearances to reliable sources. One was to a policeman in Bristol, Pennsylvania, who reportedly shot the creature multiple times. One was a saloon owner and several of his customers in Camden, New Jersey. And probably the craziest story was when the Jersey Devil appeared in an alley in the middle of downtown Philadelphia to a couple who saw the creature spew fire from its mouth like a dragon before vaulting up on leathery wings to fly out over the buildings. Since that time, in the early 1900s, there have been several sightings and even more attempts to hunt the creature down or lure it out into the open, all of which, of course, have failed. A few unidentifiable corpses have been found that gave credence to the devil's story. While some people have written these disfigured corpses off as being one species or another, many remain unconvinced. And in all fairness, there have been known hoax attempts surrounding the Jersey Devil. In the late 1800s, one man admitted to faking devil footprints using his unshod horse, Another hoax attempt in 1909 saw a man buy a kangaroo from a circus, glue fake claws and bat wings onto this poor thing, then publicly declared that he had caught the creature alive. No one believed him, of course, and ten years later, he finally did come clean, though no record of whatever happened to the poor kangaroo is given. Whether or not you believe in this cryptid known as the Jersey Devil, we can't argue with the fact that the description of the creature and the belief of its existence has remained largely unchanged for going on 400 years since the Lenape first honored the spirit creature. But there are other stories coming out of the Pine Barrens that you may never have heard of. From the 
pirate Captain Kid's hidden treasure, to the friendly black ghost dog that greets visitors for pets and affection, to the golden-haired ghost girl who stands in her flowing white gown staring out at the empty sea, mourning a lost love, to the white ghost stag of Shamong, who is said to rescue travelers from dangers within the Pine Barrens. All of these stories emanate from this dark, foreboding forest. But probably my favorite story is the Black Ghost Doctor. The myth tells of a black doctor who was once shunned by white society and wasn't permitted to practice medicine on white folks. So he took to the deep recesses of the Pine Barrens to practice medicine to those isolated pineys who lived there. He was bartering medicines for food, and he never was fully appreciated for his efforts. He either died of old age or was lynched by a white mob, depending on which version you're reading. After the doctor's death, it is said that his ghost wandered the woods, offering aid and comfort to travelers in need. And while this is a great ghost story in itself, the true parts of this tale are even better. Because that doctor was a real person. Dr. James Still was one of 18 children born into poverty and slavery around the Pine Barrens area. First, he taught himself to read, then educated himself through books and rigorous studying to become an extremely skilled physician and herbalist. While formerly educated white doctors were treating burns and syphilis with mercury, Dr. Still was taking a more progressive stance, using the healing power of herbs collected from the Pine Barrens area, and developing a whole new mindset for how to treat people. In 1843, he bought an old still, and he set it up and began making his own tinctures and homemade remedies using these herbs, and they worked. Dr. Still had patients pay whatever they could afford. Besides regular money, he would often barter with his patients, treating ailments in exchange for herbs gathered from within the Pine Barrens. And before long, he was very popular. So popular, in fact, that those formerly educated practitioners raised holy cane that he was practicing without a license. Remember, this is long before there were rate standards and regulations. So licensed practitioners could charge whatever they wanted to with no oversight. And then this uneducated hick comes along and successfully treats people for two chickens and a handful of weeds? Who's going to pay top dollar after that? Now, after consulting an absolutely brilliant attorney, Dr. Still found a loophole that got him out of hot water. The attorney argued that James wasn't actually practicing medicine. He was simply delivering it. So this remarkable self-taught doctor continued to quote-unquote deliver medicine from an office he built near his Medford, New Jersey home. And even in his declining years, he administered care to the ailing patients that sought him out for whatever price they could afford. Despite his ridiculously overloaded schedule, Dr. James still chronicled his life and his experiences, and even his recipes in an autobiography that he published in 1877. Now, he died in 1882, 11 years after watching his son, James Thomas, graduate from Harford Medical School, the third black man to graduate from that prestigious college. And while Dr. Still's ghost may or may not be wandering the Pine Barrens looking for travelers in need of aid, his legacy helped create one of the best stories 
to ever come out of New Jersey. Unhappy ghosts wandering endlessly looking for peace is a common trope in both ancient and modern literature. Another theme we often see is the disturbance of ancient Indian burial grounds. And the concept is simple. A house or a building is erected over an ancient Indian burial ground, and the spirits of the deceased drive the new occupants mad or kill them outright. Haunted Indian burial sites make for great reading, and even better movies. The concept actually started decades ago. In 1977, Jay Anson wrote the book The Amityville Horror, in which the inhabitants at 112 Ocean Avenue, the Lutz family, struggled to deal with the ghosts of the previous owners who were slain on that property, the Defoe family. It claimed that the house was built on the lands that previously housed mentally insane Shinnecock Indians, and that the spirit's madness is what drove Ronald Defoe Jr. to slaughter his entire family in November of 1974. It's a nail-biter of a novel, and a very frightening movie, but it's only partially true. Ron Defoe Jr. did slaughter his family. The Lutz family did struggle with the ghosts, both proverbial and financial, from that event. But the whole Indian burial ground thing? Nah, sorry, it's not true. Being from this area, I've put a lot of time and research into digging into the story. The truth of the matter is that Ronald Defoe was an unstable man who committed an unspeakable act of violence, killing both parents and four siblings in a horrific way. And Jay Anson turned that event into a bestseller. First of all, the Shinnecock Indians weren't in this area. They were on the eastern end of Long Island, not the south side where Amityville is located. Secondly, Ronald Defoe was disturbed long before he lived there. But this concept of disrupting long-dead indigenous spirits opened a door for future authors to expand on the idea. Now, three years later, in 1977... Stephen King's masterpiece, The Shining, uses a similar concept, claiming that the building of the Overlook Inn, where the murders took place, was constructed on ancient Indian burial grounds. And then he ramped it up in 1983, when Stephen King created the book that caused my frightened preteen butt to lose a week of sleep straight, Pet Cemetery. In this novel... Lewis Creed and his family move to a little town of Ludlow, Maine. He befriends an older neighbor who tells him that anything buried in the local Micmac Cemetery, including the Creed's pet cat, Church, who got squished by a truck, is resurrected and returns to life. Though not exactly in the same manner in which it went into the ground. Later, when the Creed's little boy, Gage, is killed by a speeding truck, Lewis, in his grief, does the unthinkable and buries his son in the Micmac Cemetery so he can have him back. This concept of disturbing ancient burial grounds stirs in us an underlying fear, either from the guilt of desecrating someone's final resting place, or perhaps what they call settler's guilt, where a person feels guilty for the actions their ancestors took. Or maybe the unease is caused by the fact that we still remember scenes from fantastic movies like Pet Cemetery. But it isn't true. Or is it? You decide. In Princeton, West Virginia in the late 1770s, 
a man named Mitchell Clay moved his family to their new homestead, making them the first white family in the county. The lands had belonged to the Shawnee tribe, and the natives were not happy about these white invaders moving into their neighborhood and taking their stuff. The Shawnee killed two of the Mitchell's small children and kidnapped a third, his youngest son. Mitchell tracked down the missing child at the Shawnee village of Chillicothe, Ohio, only to find that the child had been burned at the stake. Taking his young son's body home, he buried his three children on his property. A century later, in 1926, a businessman bought the land and turned it into the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. He built cabins for visitors, a swimming lake, concession stands, and even installed a Ferris wheel and a swing ride. Locals from the surrounding coal mining towns couldn't get enough. They flocked to the park in droves. Then in the 1950s, things started going very wrong. First, a young girl was killed on the swing ride. Another child drowned in the lake. And by 1966, the park was closed to the public. To be honest, two fatalities over a span of 40 years is actually a pretty good record considering this was an era before modern standards and regulations. But those deaths started the whispers about the place being cursed. Lake Shawnee Amusement Park would remain dormant for the next 40 years, until the 1980s when it was purchased by a man named Gaylord White, who had a dream of restoring the park to its former glory. Well, Gaylord's dream would only last about three years until the cost of the insurance put him out of business. But now he had all this property and he didn't know what else to do. So he decided to install a mud bog to draw in spectators of motorsports. And while excavating the mud pit, he made a startling discovery. Artifacts like clothing, tools, and jewelry began to appear in the excavation debris. Soon, a mass grave was opened, revealing the bodies of as many as 3,000 Shawnee people, men, women, and children. Deciding not to tempt fate, Gaylord White halted the excavation and allowed those spirits to remain at peace. Today, the proprietors offer tours to the public, and visitors often leave an offering to those spirits. Some leave dolls and toys for the children whose spirits wander looking for something to play with. It's said the wind can be completely still, and the toys will move as if touched by unseen child hands. In some cultures, ghosts are feared, while in others they are revered and honored. And in some cultures... They are both feared and revered, depending on your relationship to them or on your behavior. For example, in many Native American beliefs, Deer Woman is a benevolent spirit who blesses those who are respectful of women and children. But to anyone who has ever harmed a woman or child, <laughs> look out. She is angry and vengeful, and she will lead an abusive man out into the wilderness before she tortures and murders him in the most horrific way. And much like the sirens who lured sailors to a watery grave, some spirits were just malicious and led unsuspecting men, women, and children to a horrible death. Stories like these would certainly keep people in line, simply in the fear that someone like Deer Woman would come along and exact revenge for your transgressions. But more often than not, the evildoer was a human, albeit possessed by a bad spirit. 
they were called a witch. Either through the use of symbols, curses, potions, or by communing with demons, many people back in this day believed that a person could hex you or influence the behavior of others. Now, witchcraft was not a new concept or even a new fear. Starting as early as 323 BC, with a woman named Theoris of Lemnos, and continuing well into the 19th century, belief in witchcraft scared the daylights out of people. Some of them were extremely well-educated and logical, reasonable people. The belief in witches brought about horrific mass panics, like the infamous Salem Witch Trials, that saw hundreds of people accused and imprisoned. Only 19 were executed before reasoning took over again. But in Europe, it was a different story. It's estimated that in Europe, between the years of 1400 and 1782, between 30,000 and 60,000 men, women, and children were executed for witchcraft. Sadly, anyone who had a working knowledge of medicinal plants or alternative healing was at risk of being accused. Midwives who delivered a baby who died of natural causes were accused. One woman was accused simply because she owned a broom and fed the neighborhood feral cat. In some cultures, like the Cherokee Nation, a witch might steal a person's life force and use it to prolong their own. This explains why some people died early and why others lived well past the quote-unquote normal time because they were stealing the life force of other people. Creatures like the Raven Mocker would steal a victim's heart and eat it, siphoning off the years that that victim had left to live. Raven Mockers were invisible, and they left no scars from their heartectomy, but attending Indian doctors knew if they opened up their patient's chest, the heart would be missing. And in some cultures, a dead witch was just as terrifying. In some northern tribes, the Skudakamuch was the evil spirit that was left behind when a witch or warlock died. This creature roamed the lands looking for human victims to feed on, though they also reportedly had the power to hex people who were weak of will. In fact, in many ways, the Skudakamuch was like our modern notion of vampires. And many of the North American tribes do have some sort of vampiric creature that lived amongst their monsters. For example, the Seminole Nation in Florida have these vampire-like creatures called Stikini. These creatures look completely human by day, but once the moon rose, they would vomit out their soul and their organs. They would expel all of their blood and become this horrifying owl monster that craved human flesh. Hanging their soul in their entrails high in the treetops, they would roam the night looking for victims. And with each victim drained of life, the Stikini grew more powerful until they possessed superhuman strength. The Stikini also had a banshee's wail that meant certain death for anyone who heard it in the night. So here's a little challenge for you. What do the 1975 Doctor Who series... The Twilight Saga, Supernatural, Star Wars, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, X-Men, X-Files, and Disney's Encanto have in common.
If you said shapeshifters, you are correct. This act of transformation from one form to another is common among First Nations peoples, but it wasn't unique to them. In Scotland, Selkies were removing their sealskin coats to walk among the people. The Celtic had the puka, Scandinavians had maras, uh, Philippines had the aswang, Japanese had the kitsune. All of these creatures have been transforming beliefs for centuries. And even in ancient history, Proteus was the Greek sea god who couldn't pick one form and stay with it. Loki was the Norse god who had the ability to change form. And we all know what Zeus was up to when he changed form. The ability to transform oneself from any one shape to another is called therianthropy. Undoubtedly, the most popular form of therianthropy is lycanthropy, meaning you change from human form to wolf form specifically, also called werewolves. Now, these werewolves could corrupt innocent people through a bite, and full moons revealed the true face of the person as they transformed involuntarily. For people who chose to become lycanthropes, they could put on a belt or an article of clothing made of wolf's fur, and that would transform them. At least, that's how it used to be, until shows like The Twilight Saga began to show lycanthropes in a different light. And much like the witch hunts in Europe, panicked masses hunted down those suspected of lycanthropy. A person who was particularly hairy or suffered from insomnia or owned a wolf pelt might find themselves being hauled before the tribunal, or worse. Now, in native cultures, and particularly the Navajo tribe, this transformation was caused by a skinwalker. A skinwalker is a malicious witch spirit who has the ability to transform themselves into animals, or possess the animal's body. Many times the animal of choice was a coyote. A skinwalker can be anyone who lives among the people, male or female, but they are always evil, and they are never to be confused with a medicine man or woman who is a healer and only works for the good of the people. And to be honest, little else is known about skinwalkers, unless you happen to be Navajo. And this goes back to that disclaimer I gave at the beginning. Like most tribes, the Navajo are hesitant to share some of their legends with the white world, and for good reason. They have an entire lifetime of learning the context of legends and cultural aspects, and they have a great respect for what their ancestors have passed down to them. We curious white folk are working off half-true facts that we gleaned off of Wikipedia, or something that one of the well-meaning but uneducated masses posted on social media. Or worse, we take what Hollywood depicts in movies as fact, when the truth is, Hollywood made it up and monsterfied it to sell tickets. So while I encourage you to research, research, research when it comes to native legends and lore, I also encourage you to keep in mind that most of the real details are not going to be found by Google. So take what you read and see with a hefty grain of salt and be respectful of native people when they choose not to discuss certain things with you. Now, with that rant out of the way, let's look at our final monster of the episode. Anyone who plays video games has likely seen this character wandering about, 
and there are many appearances of it in movies and novels beginning around the early 1900s all the way to today. It's often portrayed by Hollywood as an antlered wraith, black and menacing with glowing red eyes and long, terrifying claws. But that's not what it looked like on the fur trade frontiers. Amongst the mountain men and the Algonquian-speaking tribes, this beast went by many names. Witika, Chenu, Achen, Kewak. But you probably know it best by its Cree and Ojibwe name. We're talking about the Wendigo, or Wendigo. In most beliefs, the Wendigo is a malicious spirit that takes over humans, either in their dreams or by biting them. Some people are more susceptible to the Wendigo's powers than others. For example, people who are greedy or gluttonous are easily manipulated by this evil spirit. People who are starving are also more likely to become a Wendigo. The first account that we actually have of a Wendigo comes to us from that French Jesuit missionary that we talked about earlier, Father Paul Lejeune, way back in 1636. Remember, he's the guy who doubted the validity of the shaking tent ceremony until it actually started to glow. The Wendigo is described as being gaunt, corpse-like, always starving, always searching for satisfaction, but never sated. This emaciated creature is a skeleton wrapped in skin, with cheekbones protruding under the ashen skin of its face. Eye sockets are sunken in and ringed in black circles. Jagged, gnarly teeth protrude from curled, desiccated lips, with blood from recent victims dripping from the fangs. Internal organs like the heart and lungs are filled with ice, and the stench of rotting flesh emanates from this walking, corpse-like creature wherever it goes. It seeks out its victims, looking for the greedy, the lazy, and the obese, and the desperate, starving people of the village. With each victim it consumes, it grows larger, never able to reach satisfaction, because its stomach never fills up before it consumes another human and grows again. For people who were forced to resort to cannibalism in lean winters, becoming a Wendigo was your eternal punishment. You will forever desire human flesh, but your appetite will never be sated. And you will always put your fellow humans at risk of becoming a Wendigo as you prowl about in the night for more victims. And the worst part of the Wendigo story is that people have claimed to be under the Wendigo spell to explain away their actions in committing horrendous murders and cannibalism. Sometimes a person suffers from something called Wendigo psychosis, where they truly believe they are the victim of a Wendigo possession. And during a time when people genuinely feared the Wendigo, special trials had to be held to determine if the accused was actually a Wendigo, or if he was just a regular old murderer trying to get away with it. Probably the most famous of these stories happened at the tail end of the fur trade. During a particularly harsh Canadian winter in 1878, a trapper from Alberta, Canada named Swift Runner and his family were starving to death. Swift Runner's eldest son had already died of starvation. Despite the fact that he was only 25 miles away from the nearest Hudson's Bay Company trading post, where emergency food supplies awaited him, he murdered and butchered his wife and five remaining children, and he ate them all. 
at his subsequent trial at Fort Saskatchewan, he claimed he was under the influence of a Wendigo. A special trial was held, and it was determined that because he was so close to food supplies, and didn't just kill and eat one at a time for survival, but instead killed them and ate them all at once, he was suffering from Wendigo psychosis. Well, the only way to stop a Wendigo from spreading that curse was death, and Swift Runner was executed to stop the curse. Now, while I'm not debating the Wendigo is a real monster to some, I'm actually wondering if the concept of such a creature isn't meant to promote working together for the good of all, or being your brother's keeper. For example, you see a person starving in the village. You know that guy is likely to get Wendigoed, so you share your food with him. Alternately, if you're starving and you're starting to eye up the neighbor's fat little toddler as a prospective meal, knowing that you face eternal damnation as a Wendigo, and death when your friends find out that you're possessed, might be what it takes to keep you from doing something terrible. Or perhaps it was a lesson in moderation, knowing that Wendigos specifically hunch greedy people might keep one's own greed in check. Ultimately, I think the Wendigo embodies the duality in each of us and the daily struggle we all face. If we give in to the worst, the best is lost forever. That's it for this Halloween episode. I hope you all enjoyed a look at the myth and monsters that people of this time period would have faced. Uh, I apologize for my voice. We just got back from a very wet rendezvous and I have a cold. So I apologize if I sound sniffly. Join me again in a few weeks for the next episode. Happy Halloween, everyone. Celebrate safely and keep your powder dry.